Okay, Mark chapter 10, um, we're moving on from where Jesus has been ministering in the, the area of Galilee, and particularly in the little village of Capernaum. We call it a village. It might be well said to say it was a city of some 1,500 people or so. And, but it, it tells us right here in verse 1, Then he arose from there. That is to say, he was leaving there. And the implication here is he's gone. This is his last ministry in Capernaum, in the Galilee area. He's on his way to uh, Judea and, in particular, Jerusalem. It's been a long haul, a lot of teaching, a lot of things have happened. And, of course, there have in in this account in the in the synoptics particularly you don't see Jesus making a lot of travel back and forth to Jerusalem don't get the idea that all of his time up to this point was spent in Galilee and if you look in Mark's or Mark's John's gospel you'll find out that he actually had gone to Jerusalem and back on uh, different occasions that was not the purpose of the uh, synoptic writers, in particular here, Mark. So the implication here, though, and the, and the gist of this is when he arose to depart from there, he's leaving Capernaum, and he's on his way to the area of Judea. As a matter of fact, it says he came to the region of Judea by the other side of the Jordan. Now, if you look on a map, uh, you'll off, uh, during the time of Christ, you'll often find it was called Perea, P-E-R-E-A, Perea. That was on the eastern side of the Jordan River. Now, apparently, he went around the lake on the north side of the Sea of Galilee and just traveled down. I don't think that he crossed the river. He may have, but the indication is, is that he traveled down the other side. And, of course, there were many Jewish people that lived on the eastern side of the Jordan River. As a matter of fact, we find out on this little occasion, some Pharisees met up with the Lord Jesus on this question of divorce. Now, it tells us here, the multitudes gathered to him again. And then it says, and as he was accustomed, he taught them again. This double use of again tells us that this continuing, ongoing ministry of Christ and that these trips that he had made to Jerusalem on previous occasions let us know that the multitudes were completely aware of Christ. They were aware of his teachings and they were aware of the miracles. They were aware of what he was doing and what he was preaching and so when he came into the area, the news traveled quickly, and they gathered together to go wherever Jesus was. They wanted to hear him preach. They wanted to see him perform miracles and of healing and so on. And so they gathered together. Um, what happens? First thing on the scene, we have the Pharisees coming again. Now, in English, we say the Pharisees. But in the Greek text, there's no article there. It's just Pharisees came. And all that does is serve to tell us again, as we saw earlier, that this was no official party from the, you know, the, the leading Pharisees in Jerusalem. This was just Pharisees that were living on the east side of Jordan, and they came approaching Jesus. 
Now, the interesting thing about all that is, is that it doesn't matter where Jesus went, there were Pharisees there, and everywhere he went, they were against him. They were contrary to his teaching. Everything that he taught, they quizzed him about, and they sought to trap him in and test him over. And it says here in the scriptures that they did no differently here without this issue, about this issue of, of divorce. And so they asked the question, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now that's a fairly wide open question. Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? Now, of course, to understand that question, it's, it's helpful to know the background, where they were coming from. Now, of course, what it tells us here is that they were testing him, putting him to the test. That is to say, in the primary meaning of this word test, it's just like you and I were taking a test to see if we had the capability or the ability to pass the test. And they were putting Jesus to the test as a rabbi to see how he would handle this difficult issue, this divisive issue. It wasn't so much as difficult as it was divisive in the sense that there were two schools of thought regarding divorce. And it all goes back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. So the question was simply to get Jesus to commit to one of the other schools of thought and to see if he could defend himself on his position. Um, You have to really admire somebody as astute as the Lord Jesus when he comes back and answers their question with a question. And we're often taught in debate or argumentation that if, if you want to allay someone or deflect their question, to ask another question. So that's what he did. He said, well, what, what did, uh, did Moses command you in verse 3? What did Moses command you? He didn't say, well, what do the rabbis teach? He says, what did Moses command you? He took them right back to the beginning of Scripture in the Pentateuch to get his answer. And he takes them to um, Deuteronomy chapter 24, a passage that is foundational, in in one sense at least, to a proper answer here. They said in verse 4, Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her. Or really more literally, to put her away. And that word divorce, as it's translated here, I think in the King James it says put her away, which is probably a little clearer as to what the word is. It comes from the same word where we get our word apostasy. And we are familiar with that word very much because apostasy means to stand away from or depart from or to distance yourself from something else. 
And in the matter of apostasy, as to far as biblical teaching goes, it means to distance yourself from the teaching of God's word, what the truth is, to forsake it, to back away from it. And so you catch the same idea here. In the idea of divorce, he's saying to put your wife away, to step away, to back away from her, to set her free or dismiss her and send her on her way. Now, um, the English Standard Version says send her away instead of dismiss. And the King James says put her away. The word dismiss just means to set her free, to let her go. Uh, In these two schools of thought regarding divorce, one took a very conservative position, and that was it had to be due to sexual immorality of some sort. The other one said pretty much anything, burn the toast, don't, don't fix a meal the right way, or... Just a little eye glanced off towards someone else and say, hmm, I think I like the looks on that one a little better than the one I got. I'm going to get rid of her. I mean, that's how easy it was on the one side. It was extremely liberal. And you think, I mean, I know that's humorous. Uh, Some guy said, burn the biscuits. Well, I mean, there was literally rabbis who taught that if she didn't fix a proper meal and he wasn't satisfied, And that was grounds enough to put her away and go look for someone else, somebody that could cook, as it were. So you get the idea here, the tone of voice and the tone in which they answered uh, that Moses permitted a man to write a certificate of divorce and to dismiss her was a total focus on just the legal aspects. Moses Said, He permitted, he allowed, he let divorce occur. So look back at Deuteronomy chapter 24 and let's just see what Moses said. Because that's going to be very, very important to the argumentation here that Jesus is setting forth in answer to the Pharisees. And by the way, it says to give her a certificate of divorce. That is, he was to write down in writing why he was letting her go, putting her away, stepping back from her. And that was so that she would be protected. The pettiness of the reasons for divorce. And so we look at chapter 24, verse 1. He says, when a man takes a wife and marries her, and it happens that she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some uncleanness in her. Now that's the key word to focus on, uncleanness. Some uncleanness in her. How are we going to define that? What is that? And he writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand, and sends her out of the, his house. When she has departed from his house and goes and becomes another man's wife, if the latter husband, the second one, detests her and writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand 
and sends her out of his house. Or if the second husband, the latter one dies, who took her as his wife, then the former husband who divorced her must not take her back to be his wife after she has been defiled. For that is an abomination before the Lord, and you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Don't forget the words. The land the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. Innately connected together with divorce is inheritance in the land. Now, the uncleanness. What is that? Well, the literal rendering of the word just means some nakedness. Something of a sexual impurity of some sort. Now you say, well, just exactly what does that mean? Well, most would understand that, and I think it's fair to say anything up to adultery, but not including adultery. Now you say, well, why would that be? Well, because there was already a law on the books that took care of adultery. And it said, if you commit adultery, you're to be put to death, the man and the woman. So that was already covered. So it was some other kind of uncleanness up to the point of adultery that called for a permissive action on the part of the husband uh, to divorce his wife. So one school of thought, you remember, said this some sexual uncleanness was permissible. You could divorce on that grounds and that grounds alone. The other school uh, interpreted uncleanness in a much broader way, like burning the biscuits or not making a meal the right way or whatever other excuse he could come up with. If he just thought the grass looked greener on the other side, uh, as we're often tempted to do, then anything you could find that was sufficient and you could divorce your wife. Now, the law established very clearly in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments, thou shall not commit adultery. And if you do, Leviticus 20 and verse 10 said, the man who commits adultery with another man's wife He who commits adultery with his neighbor's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress, shall surely be put to death. And then in Deuteronomy 22 and verse 22, it says there, If a man is found lying with a woman, married to a husband, then both of them shall die. The man that lay with the woman and the woman, so you shall put away the evil from Israel. It was not to be in the land. So these two schools of thought... I mean, they were miles apart. They clashed one direction and were miles apart on the other side. The Septuagint, which we know is the Greek translation of the Old Testament Hebrew, which was done somewhere around 200, 250 B.C., somewhere along in there. It uses a word for that word uncleanness. It means something that's shameful, indecent, or unmentionable. 
So like, for instance, over in uh, Genesis 34, 7, you remember when Shechem sexually assaulted Jacob's daughter? Remember when that occurred? He uses the same word over there. He says there, and the sons of Jacob came in from the field when they heard it, and the men were grieved and very angry because he had done a disgraceful thing. Something very disgraceful, shameful, unmentionable, indecent in Israel. And so the putting away of one's wife, according to Deuteronomy 24, has its basis in some kind of uncleanness, impurity, unmentionable. And that was the only condition. Now, we know that over in Matthew's gospel, he mentions this exception. We call it, we call it the exception clause because it's, it's just there twice in Matthew's gospel. And there's an exception to the rule. Mark doesn't mention it. Why? Because he's writing to Romans. I don't think sometimes we realize, you know, when we compare our culture today with the culture in the day of Jesus and in the culture of Rome, how prevalent divorce was even then. It was a big problem. Jesus reminds them, though, why Moses made this limitation and why he made this permission. Because of the hardness of your heart. Now, I don't know how to preach on hardness of heart. I don't know how to express it. You know what your heart is. You know what you have inside you. But the word hardness of heart just means dry, rough, coarse, harsh, or severe. And so for a a man to come to that point, or a woman, in their marital relationship, where there is dryness, severeness, harshness, hardness in their heart with their spouse means you've got a big problem. Things are not going the way they should. So what's the converse of that? What should it be on the other side if if your heart is hardened? Well, I think that we can probably look to, uh, if I could do that, I'll, I probably might get ahead of myself. It, you know, um, let, me, let me just follow Jesus here. That's a good idea, right? Let's just, let's just go to verse 6. <laughs> Jesus said in verse 6, Moses allowed this because of the hardness of your heart, but from the beginning of creation... God made them male and female. Now, it's important, I think, for us to understand the flow of the thought here. God made them male and female. 
a man and a woman. There's no article here either. It's not God made them the male and the female, or it's not plural. God didn't make the males and the females. So the implication then is, is that it's, it's, a, it's singular. It means he made them a pair. The two are a pair. They belong together. That was his initial intent. And of course, I think I've given this illustration more than once, uh, or I've tried to, it's not really an illustration, I've just tried to use imagination more than illustration, to imagine being, being there on the scene, if I, now this is contrary, of course, because man hasn't been created yet, so I'm not there, nobody else could have been there, uh, only, nobody was there but God, and so he, he's created Adam, and out, he puts Adam to sleep, and he takes out of Adam flesh from him, and he builds the woman, or makes the woman. So when Adam wakes up, what does he see? He looks at Eve, and he says, huh, you're, you're bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. You were made right out of me. We're one. We're together. It's not like God, you know, made Adam over here and fashioned him out of the clay and put him together like a potter does and, you know, fashioned all this stuff. And then over here he decided, okay, now I'm going to make a woman and I'll fashion her out of the clay and I'll bring them together. That's not the picture at all. And you don't need to be thinking that way. It's not two independent people coming together in marriage. That needs to be understood. It is two people coming together as one, united together as one flesh. As a matter of fact, he says, For this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife. Now, that word joined just means glued together. That's a pretty tight bond. That's pretty close. And there are at least probably a couple of elements that go together to make a marriage. One is the physical intimacy, and then the other is the law of the land. Once those two things have been accomplished, that is, you've, you've gotten your marriage certificate, you've obeyed the laws of the land, and then the physical intimacy take place, then marriage has occurred. And by the way, I used to, was it Jesse Sandberg, I think it was, used to say, and if you're married to a certain person, a woman or a man, then it's God's will for you to be married to that person. Don't be looking over your shoulder saying, did I miss out on God's will? Was it that person over there? No. Once that has occurred, it is God's will for you to be married to that person. So they're joined together as one flesh. Their, 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 their oneness, the fact that they are one then, demands that they stay together. Now that's the teaching. What's the reality? Well, we know the reality 
is something else. But in verse 8, he says, The two shall become one flesh, and so then they are no longer two, but one flesh. But we know it doesn't always stay that way. Verse 9 says, Therefore what God has joined together, let not man separate. Or I think the King James might say, tear asunder. Don't let man separate as strong as that union is being glued together. We are not to rip it apart and destroy it. But of course, as I said, that's, that's the teaching. What is the reality? The reality is, is that man actually can take apart what God has put together. And we know that. I mean, that's not anything bright or revelatory to anybody. I remember as a young kid back in the, ooh, this would have been probably sometime in the middle to late 50s, um, uh, when I first found out about divorce. And I found out that I had an uncle that had been divorced many years before. And uh, then I knew about an aunt, too, that had gotten a divorce. And, you know, something happened in me. I, I didn't understand that stuff. I mean, I was just a kid. But I knew from the, that moment on I hated it. I just absolutely despised the whole idea um, of what that meant. And I made up my mind then that wasn't going to happen to me. And you can ask Janet, but I remember our first date. I don't know. I guess we probably talked about marriage right away, didn't we? It didn't take us very long. We 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 didn't we we were we felt like we were pretty old. I was twenty six. She was twenty two. We thought we were we thought we were over the hill. So I I just said, hey, whatever goes on here, there ain't going to be any divorce. Okay. We got that squared away right from the beginning. That was one of the first things. And not because I was anything righteous about it or not any, isn't any time, any, anything to say that um, we didn't come close <laughs> or felt like it or said, hey, <laughs> I need to go out and spend some time alone for a while, okay? <laughs> that stuff happens. That's the reality. This is where we live. This is what we are. Men do this. Men do separate what God has joined together. And by the way, the whole idea here then is to understand, and and I know this term is popular today and I don't like it, the word partner. This is not a partnership. A partnership implies you can dissolve it and do away with it. A marriage is not a partnership. It is one flesh. It is a man and a woman joined together before the Lord Jesus Christ and before God the Father, and it's living in light of that command which he gave that we are to live in such a fashion the rest of your life. But again, the reality is something else. Divorce occurs. We're all well aware of that. There's promiscuity, adultery, fornication, 
Or <laughs> there's just looking over the fence and saying, ha, it looks a little greener over there. And so we separate. Well, they get in the house. They're all alone, Jesus and the disciples. And so what, did he, what happens there? They ask him about the same matter, it says. And he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Now, you'll notice here, we're not dealing with the exception clause here. But you understand that it's not adultery if adultery has taken place and there is legitimate grounds or some other form of sexual impurity has occurred and divorce occurs, then there is no adultery. So when does adultery occur then? It occurs because you just got tired of living with that person. It occurs because of your hard heart and mine. And we just couldn't last. We couldn't endure. And we just wanted to quit and give up and stop being married to that person. And so we cave in. We think that because we learned a lot, the next time I get married, I'll do it this way. Or I'll do it that way. Or I just won't get married at all. I just... <laughs> and so we, we, we make up all kinds of excuses as to why it's going to be that way. And by the way, you do know, and I think we should realize from this, that there is such a thing as an innocent party. You see, if you take the view of the more, the more liberal view, and by the way, there, you know, there are scholars that hold to this more weaker view, this, or I'd say the more liberal view, divorce for anything, any reason. It's just, you know, God allows it, so why not? I mentioned that we need to keep an eye and think about this little phrase that Jesus, or excuse me, that Moses mentioned earlier in Deuteronomy uh, chapter 24 regarding this matter of divorce. When he says, you shall not bring sin on the land which the Lord your God is giving you as an inheritance. So in light of that, how do we, how do we deal with this? How do we ask the question, how, how can I make sure that I don't fall into this trap, that I don't violate these principles and what God has asked me to do. In other words, how do I stay married? How do I make a go of it? 
I think it's really quite simple, at least in my mind. Now, I'm just saying the teaching is simple. I'm not saying in practice it's simple. I'm saying what Jesus teaches us is simple, and what Paul teaches us is simple, and what the scriptures have to tell us on the surface is really quite simple. And it's simply this. I'm just going to give you one example. There are many in the New Testament. If you look at Galatians chapter 5, when Paul talks about the works of the flesh, walking in the, in, in the flesh or walking in the Spirit, doing the works of the flesh, being led by the Spirit, he's talking about what will prevent us from inheriting the land or inheriting the kingdom. He says in verse 18, Galatians chapter 5, verse 18, he says, If you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now notice that. Because if you're led by the Spirit, the Old Testament law and Deuteronomy 24 shouldn't even have to factor in. Now the works of the flesh are evident, which are adultery, fornication, uncleanness, dissensions, heresies, envy, murders, drunkenness, revelries, and the like, of which I tell you beforehand, just as I also told you in time past, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So what are we looking at? We're looking at a marriage. We're looking at two adult people living together under one roof, maybe raising a family, learning to practice these things right here. In verse 22, the fruit of the Spirit. Because if you practice the others, he says, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the practicing of the fruit of the Spirit, which he says is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, or meekness, self-control. Against such, there is no law. Against these things. In other words, that's the positive side. This is what we are to practice. And if we are doing these things, then we don't have to experience the downside of a marriage that breaks up. If there is anything that God has put in his word as a motivator for us to change and to become what he wants us to be, It's his kingdom. And to know that if we don't change, if we continue on like this for our entire life, and if we are practicing, and I think some of your newer translations uh, might say that, like the New King James says, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. So you're saved. You're a believer. You love the Lord Jesus. Because he 
gave you the gift of life, but you haven't loved him enough to obey him and to be led of his spirit. To let these things work in your heart and in your life to make you become the kind of person that will inherit his kingdom. I think that's what he was trying to tell his disciples back here when he said to them, not focusing on the exception clause about adultery and so on, but when he was saying, any man who, as it were, looks over his shoulder and has second thoughts about the person they're married to, man or woman, and I, I like Mark because he, he, he's the only one that mentions both of these, by the way, whether it's the man or the woman. Either one who has a wandering eye has put themselves in this kind of position. And, and, and I don't have time, and I'm not, it's not part of germane to today's message because it's not in Mark, uh, but in Matthew's gospel. If you look very closely at what Jesus said in Matthew 19, uh, he, he gives the, um, how do I want to say this? When such a thing occurs outside the bounds of the exception clause, that is, a divorce occurs for any other reason other than adultery or fornication or any other kind of sexual immorality, he says you have put the opposing person, the innocent person, in a position of becoming an adulteress or an adulterer. And so what Jesus, I think, was trying to imply and, and teach to his disciples here was that very principle. That if you divorce for any other reason, not that it doesn't happen, but you've, you've committed a grievous sin in causing the other person to commit adultery. Besides you, if you marry again, you've committed adultery. Now, that's the plain, hard teaching of Jesus on this topic. Of course, there's more to it. But that is very simply what he says. What do we do now? Stay married. No matter who you are, no matter what state you find yourself in, stay married. And then begin to practice these things that he speaks about here in Galatians. He says the same thing in Ephesians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, um, Ephesians chapter 2, about putting off certain things, putting on other things. In other words, growing in grace, growing in the graces of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love, the joy, the gentleness, the humility, the meekness. These things will not only ensure a rock-solid marriage, but it will also ensure entrance into his kingdom that is abundant and rich and full.
You know, if you go back to 1 Peter, I'm going to quit on this verse right here. I hope. <laughs> Tracy, Tracy kept telling us down in, uh, when he was preaching and down in Barbados, he'd say, well, I'm going to stop with this one. That's, that's my final number one. Then he'd go final number two, then final number three. And finally, somewhere along the line, he would, he would eventually quit. But, uh, and I don't have my other Bible here, but I think it's, uh, nope, that's not it. Must be. Um, I know where it is in my other Bible because it's right there on this spot. And now I can't find. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm looking for that verse where Jesus said, um, or, or Jesus, Peter said, um, um, here it is. Oh, it's verse seven. I was in verse eight. I was just one verse away. First Peter three, seven. Now remember, think about this with, with regard to the inheriting of the kingdom. He says, husbands, likewise dwell with them, that is, with your wife, with understanding, giving honor to the wife as to the weaker vessel and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered. And that, that being heirs together... You remember over in Romans chapter 8 where he says we are joint heirs, co-heirs with Jesus of his glory if we choose to suffer with him? Well, it's the same word here. We are joint heirs with our wife and our husband if we practice these things. We are co-heirs of the grace of life. And that phrase, the grace of life, is just another expression referring to not just life now, but life in the coming rule of the Lord Jesus. Life in that kingdom, as Ken mentioned, in which righteousness will prevail and it will be supreme over the whole earth. What a wonderful day to look forward to. How tragic it would be for one spouse or another to gain entrance into the kingdom and for the other one to miss altogether. But you know, if you really think about that, that's entirely possible. That could be. It takes two people that do not have rough, harsh, severe, hard hearts working together, living together, purposing together so that they might receive that bountiful inheritance and that abundant welcome into Christ's kingdom. Now, I know we can do it. I know that it can happen, and it will, if we put our hearts to it. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for the love of the Lord Jesus Christ towards us. And Lord, for the difficulty, the hardness, the, uh, the uh, seeming on the surface of what you've taught us regarding divorce and marriage and all the things that go with it and remarriage and how we need to put our focus on living together in the light of your word and progressing on to Christian maturity 
allowing the Spirit's work in our lives to change us and mold us and perfect us and bring us to that place where we are completely mature in Christ, that we might be as that Passover lamb, unblemished. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.